I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues. This idea travelogue lists up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, Executive Director of the African American Policy Forum. Together with the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies, we welcome you to the 18th episode of our Under the Black Light series. This one entitled, Black Men Voting for Trump, The Overdue Conversation on Patriarchy and Misogynoir in Black Politics. This evening, we'll be exploring a particularly hot topic, judging from the tweets, the comments, and the phone calls that we've received so far. So let me start here. Only about a month ago, we learned from Channel 4 News, that's the same British television station that broke the Cambridge Analytica scandal last year, that the 2016 Trump campaign created a digital strategy to deter at least 3.5 million African-Americans from showing up at the polls. This voter suppression campaign targeted black voters, black women in particular, with negative messages designed to discourage them from voting. This misinformation was spread by bots presenting as black Americans who wanted to activate narratives about democratic failures. Now, particularly insidious is the fact that these not actually black bots took kernels of truth about the Democrats, such as how they're spearheading of the disastrous omnibus crime bill during the Clinton years, um, actually impacted communities of color, yet completely omitting the fact that Republicans and Donald Trump's longer and deeper pattern of criminalizing black people also did damage, significant damage. If it were up to Trump, he would have had the Central Park Five executed. People are talking about that. So such targeted efforts to depress the Black vote were a victory in and of themselves, coupled with decades-long strategies of vote suppression. This depression might have been the combo that allowed Trump to eke out a razor-thin victory in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. He won the Electoral College by only... 76,000 votes in those three states. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone now that the Trump campaign is at it again. But this time around, there's a different strategy. This time around, the goal is not just to suppress, but to push up Black support for President Trump. And a few percentage points may be all they really need. Evidently, Black men have been the target of much of this messaging. Data suggests that while Trump won 8% of all Black voters in 2016, he won 13% among African-American men, more than three times the support he got from Black women. That support, contrary to popular belief, has increased in the last four years. A more recent NBC Wall Street Journal poll found that 24% of Black men approved of Trump's job performance. 400% greater than the 6% of Black women who felt the same. In fact, some predict that Trump may gain more Black male support than all previous Republican candidates, Romney, McCain, and Bush. 
Trump-friendly advocacy from Black men like Kanye West, Ice Cube, and 50 Cent adds uh, star power to the recent fervor for Trump amongst Black men. So what's our goal tonight? Well, we want to understand it. But let me be clear before the tweets start. The most significant gap remains a racial gap. No matter what we talk about tonight, Black folks across the board are the least likely among all racial groups to give support to Donald Trump and to his policies. Black men are second only to Black women to give Trump low approval ratings. So nothing here should be mistaken to say that there's a lot of enthusiasm for Trump among Black Americans writ large. We are at least the least enthusiastic for reasons ranging from race baiting to birtherism, to his reluctance to denounce white supremacy, to his attacks on the squad, his attacks on the Obamas, Black Lives Matter. We could go on and on. Still, given all of this, there is a huge gender gap within the race gap. Now, our question is, is this something new? Or is this an echo of something that has long been part of the Black political scene? Is it more pronounced now because a Black woman is poised as a breakthrough candidate? So on this evening's Under the Black Light, we hope not only to unpack what's led to a number of African-American men to cast their lot with a candidate who has galvanized a robust politics, let's say, of white grievance. We also want to spark a discussion about how they all see the stakes of this year's election. So we've got an incredible group of black male leaders, writers, thinkers, activists, black male feminists to help guide us through these questions and more. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to pass the mic to Luke Charles Harris, the co-founder of the African-American Policy Forum. Luke is the Associate Professor of American Politics and Constitutional Law at Vassar College. He's an expert in the field of critical race theory. He's authored a series of influential articles on questions of racial and gender equality in US and recently co-authored the book, Seeing Race Again, Countering Colorblindness Across the Disciplines. Now, Luke will be joined in our setup that we're calling the barbershop uh, by Wade Davis, a thought leader, public speaker, speaker, writer on gender and racial equality, and former NFL player. Wade is the NFL's first LGBT inclusion consultant and has consulted for multiple professional sports leagues on issues at the intersections of sexism, racism, and homophobia. He's currently the vice president of inclusion strategy for product at Netflix. And he also serves as the director of professional sports outreach for You Can Play. Alvin Starks is joining us. He's the director of the Equality Fund at the Open Society US, where he oversees Open Society's grant making related to racial justice and racial narrative. He's an emeritus board member of the AAPF and has repeatedly been recognized for his leadership in fields of philanthropy and racial justice. Marlon Peterson is also in the chair. He is the founder and president of the Presidential Group and host of the Decarcerated podcast, which highlights the journeys of resilience, redemption, and success of formerly incarcerated people. Marlon's first book entitled Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song, 
will be released in on bold type books in spring of 2021. So let's all look out for that. But most importantly, I'm happy to share today is Marlon's birthday. So happy birthday, Marlon. Thank you for sharing this special day, sitting in our shop in one of our chairs. Last but not least, we'll be joined by Kese Lehman. He is the Audley Schilling Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Mississippi. Kese is the author of the novel Long Division, a collection of essays entitled How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and most recently, his memoir, Heavy, an American memoir, which among other awards, won the Andrew Carnegie Medal of Excellence in Nonfiction. And now is my great pleasure to pass the mic to AAPF's co-founder, Luke Charles Harris. Luke, the shop is open. Well, thank you very much, Tim, and welcome everyone to this special barbershop edition of Under the Black Light. So, you know, I'm going to begin by saying, you know, I have to confess, this is a conversation that I really didn't think we'd have to have, not since Woodrow Wilson have we had such blatant racism in the White House. The list goes on and on, but in this generation defining election less than a week away and with millions of early votes already cast, I'm hearing about uh, the growing phenomenon of Black men who are opting to vote for President Trump. Well, now, why do these guys choose to support a president who seems to the vast majority of Blacks to be very much opposed to the interests of Black men and their communities? To gain an understanding of why some Black men have a particular affinity to the current occupant in the White House, our team at AAPF has analyzed polling data, read extensive coverage of the campaign, and interviewed an array of fervent Trump supporters. Um, so we're gonna set the stage for this discussion. Uh, let's imagine that we're all in a black barbershop. And by the way, I'm, I'm the lead barber in this barbershop. We're kicking back, and there's a basketball game playing on the TV in the background. Let's call this loose shop. I, I like that. And I've got stuff on my mind. So, Wade, you're in my chair. What do you typically get when you go to the barbershop? What are you looking to get, man? I'm, I'm trying to get either a fade, but right now I'm growing out my hair. So I'm trying to get, you know, just a light little temple taper and then, you know, just just type, just tighten up the back a little bit. Oh, and that's so cool. I, you know, I'm jealous of you. I, there, there was a time when I could have gotten a fade when I wasn't <laughs> bald. But yeah, I, I hear you. Okay, you know, we've been talking about this lecture next week and, and the brother in, in the next chair gives us a riddle. He says, uh, you know what BLM stands for? We all say Black Lives Matter, my brother. And he says, nah, it's Black Lesbians Matter. Our heads swivel like a pogo stick as he goes on. These protests are about looting, he says, LGBT nonsense and emasculating the Black man. All of these other isms are a distraction from the biggest problem, which is racism. And that's why I'm supporting Trump, uh, because of everything he does for Black folk especially right now with the Trump Platinum Economic Plan. So Wade, I'm looking at you now. Talk to me like you would talk to, the, to this brother, because I'm not sure where I'd begin. You know, the first thing that, that I would say is I would say thank you. Kind of thank you for naming something that Black women, that Black LGBTQ folks, that Black disabled folks have always known, right? That far too many Black men see the liberation of Black folks as the Black man's role. 
they see the deliberation of a black man as the single most important issue. And it's not really racism, right? Because black women, black queer folks, black trans folks, we all face racism, right? But what they really want is to be the leader of this actual movement. So I would just say thank you for validating something that I, that we have always known. The second thing that I would say is Negro, please. As a black man, you can't imagine following the leadership of a black person that doesn't identify as straight, that's not cisgender, that's not athletic, that's not swagged out, that's not attractive, because what you really want is power. And let's get clear about like what I mean when I say power. And I like how Baldwin describes it as the ability to control one's destiny or the destiny of others. And what you really want is power, but power is fool's gold, right? That, that power is not gonna hold you at night. That power is not gonna tell you that I love you. That power is not gonna make you feel. It's not gonna make you feel valued, seen, and loved really hard. But the truth is, the very people who you are rejecting, us queer Black folks, Black women, Black trans folks, you don't need power for us to see you, for us to value you, for us to love you during and past all of your pain. Because truthfully, Patrice, Alicia, Opal, and other Black trans folks and queer folks and women, they're Black first. Not because they wanted to, but because they had to, to survive, right? And know that our Blackness isn't secondary, right? That it's something that we had to use to still be here. The other thing is, is that I would say, brothers, like, stop defining manhood so narrowly and stop looking externally for something that, as Audre Lorde says, like, you have to define. I know that you think of masculinity too narrowly because you said that you're worried about someone emasculating you. So you mean to tell me that your masculinity is so fragile that someone can take it from you? Because that's what emasculation means, right? I need you to understand that your real problem is not with black women. It's not with queer folks. It's not with trans folks. It's the fact that you have not stopped being an adult boy and have not become a man. And that you're bowing at the altar of white supremacy, of male dominance. Plus, you gotta understand that white men are not the standard that you should be modeling yourself afterwards. This is a journey that you got to go alone, bro. And I'm looking forward to walking beside you. Wow. Wow. So Alvin, you're next to Wade and an older, well-dressed Black man in a Brooks Brothers suit who's been reading the paper until this moment put it down. And he says, I don't know about all that BLM business, but what I do know is that Donald Trump is a businessman. You've seen him on The Apprentice. He knows how to run things. That's the mentality we need in America. Black men not thinking of ourselves as victims all the time. That's why he has my vote, because it's not about trying to be like Mike for most of us. It's trying to be like Trump. Alvin, it's on you. What you got? Talk to this brother. First off, thank you. I would say thank you to the brother and also nice suit. And I think we really need to have a conversation because what is being presented to us is actually a charlatan. We have to remember something. Trump is a brand, essentially a salesman. The question is, are you willing to buy his wares, right? This is a brand that is used to selling ties, steaks, hotel rooms, and now politics rooted in nationalism and white supremacy, right? 
So people are trying to figure out how you move from the TV network to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And that's a very marvelous and very big jump for most people. So what are we looking at, right? I would actually say that what we really have is a Trump seduction strategy that is rooted in creating a frenzy of a fan base. Because remember, this is someone, as you just said, comes from The Apprentice. And The Apprentice is based upon fans, right? It's based on Nielsen ratings. That's how you understand success. Currently, the Trump seduction strategy really uses a fan base to really engage new gateways around the current political parties. And part of that seduction is wanting to be that outlandish character that we saw on TV. These are false notions of wealth. And more importantly, they try to tell people that you too can be powerful. When you really think about it, Trump is actually selling a toxic masculinity cocktail. And some black men want to buy the product. But what's in the cocktail? It's authoritarianism. It's blatant misogyny, bravado. It's unlimited forgiveness from the public, right? It's cheating the system. It's notions of wealth and it's celebrity. But there is a protective veneer about this product and that's whiteness. And that is something that black men cannot gain. But they see their wealth in relationship to that white supremacy model. A while back, there was a focus group that asked Trump supporters, um, and they were trying to make a moral argument. And the moral argument was this, isn't it important that every American pays their taxes, right? Because taxes are the base of actually how we fund public education and hospitals. And isn't it a shame that the current sitting president hasn't paid his taxes? And that's a moral argument, right? And you know what people said? They said, good for him, because I didn't want to pay my taxes either. So the idea that's happening for a lot of folks who become interested in the kind of Trump fantasism is that they want to cheat the system. And he's been so illustrative to really showing that, right? So just think about it this way. Trump University was selling you know, real estate to folks. Later, there was a class action from the students who literally just said that they were duped. They had to pay a $25 million settlement just on that. So what are we talking about? We're talking about something that isn't available, but actually is getting way too much adoration and attention. So Marlon, uh, I suppose you anticipated that the brother with the MAGA hat wants to get into this conversation. And sure enough, he starts to sing a familiar tune that black heterosexual men are the endangered species and that to make matters worse, we're worse off than black women. We voted for Obama to be part of history, he says, but, you know, but aside from the pride of, of having a black person in the White House, the Democrats didn't do squat for black people. Uh, and particularly, he says that this is true when it comes to the criminal justice arena. So it's on you, Marlon. Talk to him, please. Yeah, for sure. First of all, I want to know why you asked what kind of haircut I'm getting. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, what are you getting? <laughs> I got the locks, so so I got I still get like a little nice tape up to make it look clean. I guess uh, I lost my tip, but I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So you speak to a brother who I don't believe in dismissing people. So I want to sort of kind of like get to why is he why is he believe first of all, like bro, 
first of all, why do you believe that you're an animal? That's the first thing. You know, some I believe like sometimes the things, the worst things we are told, we tell ourselves, right? And I'm, and the reason why I want to start there because at naturally, white people are the people who actually feel like they're somewhat endangered. They don't use that word though. When we when they had those folks protesting, those white people with the uh, down there in Virginia a couple of years ago. They were talking about we will not be replaced. So they actually have a sense of that they're not going to be here anymore, but they don't refer to themselves as animals. I just want to just like check him on that thing. And the next part of it is this part though, is that the belief that the male experience, the black person experience is secluded to only certain type of people, certain to a certain sexuality is skewed, is wrong, is hurtful. Another Bowen quote, you know, Bowen speaks about like ignorance plus power is you know, it's one of the most ferocious enemies of justice. You know, when we think about how much that is harmful as a mindset, it skews over the fact that black men, cis, trans women are all being harmed by all the same issues. And we want to talk about endangerment in terms of white supremacy. White supremacy isn't picking out heterosexual men, right? I mean, it's just a skewed sort of theory. But then to go on to like why he feels a way about Obama, there's a lot of critique for Obama. Absolutely. I have, I think many of us on this Zoom has. Right. But the first thing I just want to acknowledge that Obama sits on a seat of empire. Right. I just want to be clear about that. Like there's not one singular president that's going to change the circumstance of black people. First of all, and the other thing I want to say is that black people have the power to change the circumstance of black people. Just want to just throw that out there, too. But the other part of it is that when we think about a Trump and you compare it to an Obama, it's beyond representation. I mean, like, bro, like you don't think black people deserve to be treated better than Trump is treating black people now? You think that because you have some level of what seems like he cares by pounding us in the head with certain rhetoric that, you know, I've done the best for black people. I've done this HBCUs, uh, you know, the first step act. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. But even if that is the thing that you want to say, yes, he's done for us. Look at all the other things, the way he's literally spoken about us in public. Don't you deserve to be treated better than that? This sort of connection to like that patriarchy, that, that muscular sort of leadership is your commitment to that type of leadership that type of feeling, that muscular type of what's considered, I guess, heterosexual prowess. Is your commitment to that more important than like being treated better as a race of people? I'm going to go back to you, uh, Wade, because you're still in the, you're still in the barber's chair. And uh, I'm going to ask you another question. Uh, Harris may be on the way to becoming the first woman vice president in history and maybe the first woman president. Why does the fact that Harris is on the ticket not make black men of this sort uh, want to be a part of that history? You know, honestly, you know, here's the real, that I've sat in conversation with lots of black men, like the, the men in this shop, and black men have been asking one question since the BLM movement started. It's like, what's their role? because the BLM movement doesn't look like their childhood fantasy or, or match their understanding of who gets to lead. And also, you know, there are very few spaces where black men, again, have access to power. And historically, that's why so many black men became preachers because the church was the one space where black men could lead, they could have power, they could feel, as we say down South, impotent, right? But the real reason that groups like BYP 100 have the language of a leader full movement and not a leader movement is because like what happens when Martin, Malcolm, Harriet, Ida, those folks die or get locked up? The work must go on, right? So it's not about that black men are not leading or are not capable of being leaders, but we must learn to walk side by side and to exist in partnership 
because in order for us to come up with the answers that get all of us free, it cannot be decided without all of us in the room, right? And we got to use the language of what Bell Hooks taught us is that when your work starts at the margins and you work your way up, more of us get free. And we got to start to think about that instead of saying, well, I'm going to come back for, for the gays and for the women and for all those other folks later. So our reaction to not wanting to get behind a Kamala Harris is that our imagination for who our models should be as leaders doesn't look like a Kamala Harris. So I would say to you, brother, read this essay by Derek Bell called The Last Black Hero to really understand why it's so important for us to have a leader full movement and have lots of leaders in our movement and not just one. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Wade. I love the way you, you reach out and try to bridge to these brothers and, and give them other ways of thinking about the world. I'm going to, to go to uh, Brother Kiese Lehman. So now that you're in the chair, Kiese, uh, yeah, what you, what you going to do, man? I'm trying to get that LeBron, bro. I'm trying to get that <laughs> Beijing. I'm trying to get that little, you know, that little cut in the back of your head so you can cover up the patches. <laughs> I'm all LeBron, all LeBron. Well, welcome to the show. And welcome to, and, to you know, this is my barbershop. It's a better job. It's a better day job than I normally have. <laughs> so look, man, we're still in the barbershop and the conversation is still hot. We've heard that Trump is a businessman, that Dems haven't done anything, that BLM isn't about black men and that black men are an endangered species. So you walk in just in time to hear another brother say, well, yeah, Trump called Haiti a shithole country and referred to Baltimore as a disgusting, rat and infested place. And yeah, he said some stupid stuff about white supremacists, but at the end of the day, his actions matter more than his words. Trump's a man, from this cat's perspective, a man's man who has done more for black people than any president since Abraham Lincoln. What do you say in reaction to those kind of thoughts? Honestly, Luke, I, I wouldn't try to convince this person of anything. I think people like that are dangerous personally for me because they encourage me to pat myself on the back for not sucking off the same kind of patriarchal towel that they're sucking off of. You know what I'm trying to say? Like Jerry Tarkanian, head coach at UNLV, used to always suck this towel. And I think the danger of brothers like that is like, I can congratulate myself for not being ignorant as fuck. And ignorant is a word that I wanted to think about because I think even when I want to dismiss that thought, I think about it as being dumb and or ignorant. But what I don't think about it as being as methodical and wholly, wholly, wholly destructive and that's really what it is. But personally, I just need to not write that brother off to the point where I feel like all of my actions are virtuous because I don't see Donald Trump as whatever the fuck that brother would say. What I do think is important for these brothers who do want to support Trump is like, I would just ask them how seductive is not just patriarchy, but how seductive is like whiteness? Because like, I don't think we would accept a failed gangster in black culture. Donald Trump is a failed gangster. He is a rhythmless gangster. He has no code of ethics. He does not even try to win. He only attempts to cheat. The gangsters who we hold up on fucked up pedestals that we shouldn't at least wanted to try to win any means necessary. This brother's trying to cheat any means necessary. But again, I just need to make sure that I don't feel like I'm a better man than that brother who might vote that way simply because I am not, you know, 
wrapping myself in patriarchy the same way that this brother is. To me, these brothers are dangerous because I can always pat myself on the back for not being them. Meanwhile, there's a whole lot of other work I need to get done. Yeah, I, I hear you because I'm still in the process of unwrapping myself from my own patriarchy, right? And you don't want to ever lose sight of that. Glad you're in the shop, bro. Uh, Alvin, you know, I've heard that it seems that many of the Black men who supported Trump once voted for Obama, who seems to represent to a lot of us the political antithesis of what Trump stands for. How is it that these men could be attracted to both? Luke, you didn't ask me what I was going to get for my first question on my hair. So oh, yeah. Oh, I think I might just be that brother staring at the haircut chart. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but, you know, if, if I could, I would want like 15A, but with a part. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this, this is a, a good question because um, how do you get from an Obama supporter to a Trump supporter, right? And, you know, Wade said something which stuck with me. A lot of times we actually have tools inside our own racial justice history, like Derrick Bell. And you begin to understand his theory of convergence, where two different political parties find allegiance, right? And in that allegiance, in that kind of social contract, right, is how does one leave what was both Black pride, but also with an interesting mixture of Black nationalism and how Trump really provides even a further doorway, right? So think of it this way. If you were a deep supporter of like My Brother's Keeper and this notion of individual upliftment exclusively, right, that didn't require any type of penalty around racism in America, that's essentially what Trump is also selling. Those are not right in competition. So the question becomes like, well, how do you begin to like interrogate in a very real way what is both the question of patriarchy, misogyny, and I would also throw in something else that we got to really put into this table, misinformation. There is huge misinformation from the Trump seduction project. So for instance, one of the earlier slides really talked about Alice um, Johnson, who is oftentimes used, right, as their kind of clemency poster child. And they also talk about how they've used clemency to sort of free the Black community. Essentially, we're talking about 17 people. The Obama administration did 1,700 folks. That's hugely different. But you only find that out when you kind of do the deeper dive, right? And that's where the misinformation part comes in, where you believe that your seller is selling you Black advancement. That's not true. Thank you. Thank you, Alvin. Marlon, I'm going to come back to you. I know you've had a lot of experience uh, with the criminal justice system. How do you know that? Let me stop. <laughs> <laughs> and how is it that the Republican candidate is now riding uh, the anti-mass incarceration ticket for some? Is this Democrats being hoisted on their own petards? What's going on here? Well, first of all, I mean, I was talking about empire. I was kind of like give us in the context of the country that we in, right? Democrats going, 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 disrespect and disappoint us. Republicans are blatantly hurting and killing us. I just want to like draw that little distinction, right? To to to, to illuminate the point that Republicans are not have not gotten together, held hands and said we're here to save black people and black people issues. Don't believe the hype, right? That's a, you know that's the second thing I want to say. But the other part of it is this: 
The criminal justice system is not a system that only holds cisgendered men, right? It's holding all of us in increasing numbers, women. So for a president who in one hand says that he cares about black people, you have to ask himself, and he may have Alice Johnson and those few people who he may have gotten out to clemency as he should have done, right? As he should have done, don't be applauding a regular ass white dude for doing something that he should have done. He should have done that, right? Don't be clapping up and down like we thirsty, like we need you massive feed us. You know what I'm saying? But I also think that we, we are also capable of coming up with better plans that really impact everybody that's impacted by the criminal justice system, not only in the federal system also, but in the state system and the majority of people who are in jails and prisons, particularly black and brown folks are in the state system. I'm coming back to you, Kiese. Let's talk about Trump and black male celebrity culture, particularly the artists. I know lots of people were probably shocked that Ice Cube is part of this given how his art could have been background music for the Black Lives Matter movement. How is it that he's not on the same page as someone like you? Ooh. You know what, Luke, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm, I'm just gonna try to be sort of serious for a second. In the late 80s until the mid 90s, there was not an entertainer, much less a rapper, who I believe like loved me as much as Ice Cube. And what I think is interesting about Ice Cube is that particular kind of black nationalism, which was also a kind of anti-Semitism, he was held accountable for that. I think sometimes we forget, not just by the ADL, but he was held accountable for that by black feminists. So much so that Ice Cube in his lyrics, like would sometimes say, you know, a black woman is my manager, not in the kitchen. That's him responding to the critique that he's dissing black women. Or he would respond that he was dissing black women by saying, white man, you can't rape her. I can, but you can't, right? Like that's an ignorant ass response, a fucked up response. But Ice Cube was critiqued heavily by Dream Hampton, by a lot of other black feminist writers in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, he also influenced a whole lot of young people, including me. And I think if you asked Patrice, she would say Ice Cube partially influenced me. If you asked Alicia Garza, she might say he kind of, sort of, maybe influenced me. So I'm interested in what happens when you get MCs or artists like Ice Cube, whose particular kind of nationalism in an era where we just looking for any sort of protection, and we aren't getting it, but it feels like protection. He inspires these artists, these activists, these human beings who go ahead and take you know, the useful, if there are any useful parts of that particular nationalist project, and they flip it and we make it into some other art. You know, I make it into a book called Heavy. Someone else might make it into a different kind of movement. Someone else might make it into something else. But what's interesting to me is that there's not a radical curiosity about the thing that you helped create. And so when Ice Cube in Los Angeles pulls out this bullshit ass plan, when he could have gone to the actual people who created BLM and said, yo, what do y'all think about this? Again, I just can't say that's just a mistake, right? I think people like Ice Cube are like blessed over and over and over and over again with people wanting to work with them in spite of what they've said about them. This is black men's plight in general. Like a lot of times black women want to work with us in spite of what we've said or done. And so I just want to say, in some way, I have to thank Ice Cube for as like as a 10 year old for giving me like fuck the police rhetoric for coming up with a song called Bird in the Hand, which was all about carcerality and empire. But on the flip side, I just think he influenced enough people, particularly enough black feminists, 
where that black feminist thought should have come back to him. And if it came back to him holistically, I don't think he pitches a platinum plan to Trump. I think he pitches a platinum plan to the movement for black lives or BLM or the Dream Defenders or BYP. And you say to them, how can I be a help? In the absence of that, I don't know what to say. And that's as generous as I can be toward Ice Cube right now. All right, I see you. You know, wait, I, I wanted to ask you about something that you talked a little bit about earlier. Uh, you know, sexism and homophobia seem to be central impulses driving some men towards Trump. Uh, how can we critique this kind of bigotry without feeding into the trope that uh, sexism and homophobia are disproportionate issues within our community? Yeah, you, you know, transparently, it took me a long time to be able to um, see myself as something beyond just being a black man, right? That was the only thing that I could ever be was a black man, right? And even when I realized that I was gay, I couldn't imagine being a black gay man. When I realized that I was really good at football, I didn't believe that I could be a black gay man who also played in, in the NFL. Because part of you know what the damage that white supremacy does is you don't have an imagination for yourself. Like I didn't have an imagination for myself when I was in Shreveport, right? I lived on the Cooper Road that was all black, everything, but hella poor. So I couldn't imagine um, my future. And I also think that that doesn't help us imagine futures for the people who we engage with. You know, like every black man that I've ever known, right? They thought of themselves needing to be a provider. I think about the conversation that Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni had, and Nikki Giovanni was trying to get Baldwin to Im imagine something larger for not just for Black women, but for Black men. And I think for Black men, we often only see Black women as objects, as our caretakers, or as the caretaker for our children. But we got to understand that when we imagine women being small, we also imagine ourselves being small with them because they're our comparison. Yeah, wow. Because of my gender per performance and being an athlete, I was never called the word faggot. But I never felt like I could tell any of my teammates that, that I was gay. And when I interrogated it, it was because of the sexist language, right? Like calling each other a bitch or a pussy. All of that sexist language still resonated with me in a way that from talking to my friends who were LGBTQ+, the word faggot resonated with. So what I had to understand was that what the language was really about was saying that a man was having things done to him that only women have done to them. So you as a man should never get penetrated. You should never do things to another man that women do. So it was less about what I was doing. It was that I was doing things that women only do to men. And therefore the root of the real fear was the sexism and that the men who were homophobic towards me were trying to distance themselves as far as they could from anything feminine. Right. And it's why so few men openly identify as feminists. It's like there are a lot of brothers who actually believe in the definition, right, of feminism, right? You know, but but to name themselves as a feminist puts them in too close proximity to something feminine. And what we've got to do is really um, redefine what it means to be a man. Like honestly and truly. And and that for me has been the hardest work that I've ever done is like, what does it mean for me? to be a man, right? And to define that almost in a vacuum, right? To, to kind of like take all of the men that I've seen 
and analyze everything that they've done and scratch the surface of like what those assumptions underneath why this black man is doing this. And then I interrogated the fact that no black man that I grew up watching was ever faithful to a black woman. And what did that do to me? Like, how did that make me see the value of a black woman, right? So, so I would say that, that we as black men have to do some real introspective um, root work to understand like, when was the first moment that we rested in the idea that we weren't a woman? Because all of us did it. It's an unremembered moment, but there was a moment when we weren't told to put a shirt on, to close our legs, right? To, um, to do all those things. Like there was a certain freedom that we as young black boys, even though we grew up in a white, sexist, you know, patriarchal society, there are still ways where black men have more freedom than black girls. And I remember the moment that I was happy that I wasn't a girl. I was happy because I had certain levels of freedom. And that's the real work that we as black men have to do so that we can exist in partnership, right? The word with, right? And, um, and to know that, that, that black women um, are the only people that I can speak for myself that have ever really loved me. Like I can say, say that honestly, that a black woman was the only person that ever loved my crusty, nasty ass, despite all of my bullshit. Wow, I hear you. I really identify with everything you say, man. You know, I, I think about myself as a young man in college and really seeing myself as progressive. But, you know, when I look back on those years, I, I must have read dozens of progressive white dudes. I didn't read black feminists back in the day, you know. And, and you know, I, I, think, I think one of the things that's important about talking about uh, politics as black men and racial justice and, and feminism is, is to talk about, you know, the struggle that you have to go through in order to be able to see and appreciate, you know, people who are not you. I thought I had, when I was in my early 30s, a really progressive politics. Uh, and I, I remember when I first met Kim and she would ask me, so what do you think about the endangered black man? I go, yes, yes, that's us. We got, we got those problems, right? And then, you know, I, I remember once, you know, I think, I think it was actually when we were, it was around the time when we were in Washington opposing Clarence Thomas. And she had shared with me uh, some things about her, her growing up and I'd share some things about mine. So she said to me, she said, you know, Luke, you talk about endangered black men. And I went, yes, I do. And she said, she said, well, you know, didn't you tell me that your, that your, that your biological mother ran in the hard times, that she was drug addicted? that she had to leave you and your, and, and your siblings in, in various uh, you know, shelters. Uh, didn't you tell me that you were raised by a great aunt who was uh, you know, uh, a domestic for 50 years, who left school at 16 in fifth grade because she was a sharecropper? And I said, well, yeah, where are you going with this? And she said, well, wouldn't you say that they're as endangered as any black men? And I said, well, okay. And she said, well, where are they in your politics? And here's the deal. I went to look and they weren't there. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's not like I had to go to college in order to understand and see, but I didn't have a way. I didn't have an intersectional. I didn't have a feminist prism through which to look at the world. And I think you know everything that you speak to speaks to those concerns. Uh, but is there anything, Alvin, or anything, Kiese or Marlon, that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I, I do really quick. I just want to sort of test that. Like I, I grew up in like the Olympics of masculinities. And there was no thought of the word feminism, at least not in the circulars. And I grew up around, like, as kids, we refer to certain black nationalists, like, and there's a hyper-masculinity to that. The reason I'm just sort of giving that history, because I think sometimes people get caught up in thinking that, well, the people who are now considering themselves black feminists or who have these particular views, these sort of intersectional uh, views, sort of were all raised into this. 
right? Like we always felt like this, like it was something that was always common to us. It was and is uncommon to me, right? I was gonna say was and is uncommon. I have not reached the pinnacle of it. And I just wanna just throw that out there because when we, we're having this conversation around intersectionality, and I know it started off around issues of like heterosexuality and you know the endangered heterosexual male. And you put me in a barbershop 15 years ago, I'm the person saying that. But you also gotta understand this now, and I'm gonna cut off here. First of all, black men ain't the only people in the barbershops no more, right? My barber for the last seven years, the person who I've had as a barber for the longest out of all my barbers is a black woman. So I'm just saying that like, when we come to the barbershop, you gotta watch your mouth. I'm gonna say that you come to the barbershop, watch your mouth. And part of watching your mouth is going back home and really like saying like, let me rethink this thing. Don't let me just jump on the Q bandwagon. Let me rethink what black women are saying. You know, you gotta check yourself. Yeah, I would, I would just, double down, agree with everything that Marlon and Wade, and not just agree, but thank y'all for expressing that. Where it even gets trickier for me is that, you know, because the United States is so great at packaging like absolute lies in like gold sort of like wrapping paper, when you get new language or new way of seeing things, you can just take that way of understanding the world and superimpose it. And so for me, black feminism was like, I learned all of these vocabulary words and definitions. You know, I understood intersectionality. Like I really understood it. I understood patriarchy. I understood queer antagonism. I read a whole lot of Virginia Woolf. You know what I'm trying to say? I read a whole, I read, I read everything. And I think that we also sometimes need to remind ourselves that understanding the vocabulary can sometimes just make us more potent abusers. Like understanding what patriarchy is can often make us more manipulative of patriarchy. I'm not putting that on everybody. I'm saying that for myself. And so what I'm saying is, thankfully, part of this is understanding like vocabulary and doing the reading. But what we all know is that the reading, while necessary, is not enough. And the last thing we need to do is use the reading to harm folks who the reading was created to protect. This is stimulating, right? Because I think for many of us, I don't even know that we would have identified it as feminism because it was so brand new in ideas. And what it did was actually expand the world as opposed to close it. You only learn that from the engagement with the material and the ideas, right? I think, unfortunately, a lot of male-identified people can only think of the concerns of girls and women if only she is in relationship to you, which is deeply flawed. Unless she's like biologically related, then there is no concern or politic for her. And there's something else about the kind of American dilemma that race does very, very importantly. It makes us believe that there is equity scarcity, and there isn't. There isn't. So the fear of engagement is the idea that you're losing something, that there's something that makes you powerless, right? That's not it. Equality frees. It frees me, you, the person I don't know, people who speak different languages. It's as much about cis-identified as trans-identified. That's what freedom dreaming does. And I think that's what's really mobilizing, right, around the movement for Black lives. And so even when people actually target women-led organizations, it's also because I don't even think they know 
males who are also doing the work as well, right? So there's also this like information deficit that we have to kind of also fill in the gap. And the idea here is that it makes the whole powerful and it's not exclusive. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I hear all of you. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm thinking if we could talk about what does this mean that we as black men, what should we be doing now? How do we incorporate? How do we help our community incorporate? How do we use the platforms that are available to us to incorporate feminism into the heart of anti-racism? I mean, I think one thing we do, Luke, is again, it's not, it's not, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in asking anything of someone else and I'm not willing to ask it myself. So when I talk about Cube needing to have radical curiosity and asking how can he be of help? I think those of us who feel like we have something to give need to be asking, if we haven't already created that innovative pathway ourselves, asking other folk, particularly I think femmes, black women and trans folk, how can we be of help? One, personally, I've just been thinking a lot all pandemic about joy and about pleasure and about the really thin line between homosocial behavior and homoerotic behavior. And, you know, like when I was nine or so, one of my mother's students was 22 or so, and she, I mean, she molested me, she sexually abused me, but at the time, I just was like, this is my girlfriend. And when I went to camp at Jackson State, she was a counselor there, and the big boys were like looking at her and they found her attractive, and they were calling me fat boy and all of this. And so my response immediately was to tell those big boys that I had been sexually involved with that woman who they thought was fine. And then how I could prove it was I said, you know, she had a birthmark on a certain part on her body, right? And once those other men found that that birthmark was true, like they gave me what I wanted. But what is it that I wanted? I wanted those black men to love me. I wanted those black men to touch me. And so I can say that it was homosocial. Sometimes I just think even as grown black men, we need to talk about the ways that sometimes we like long for like the touch of male identified folk. You know, because I'm a language person, I think talking about tenderness and talking about touch necessitates us also talking about power. But I think it's a lot easier for like us cis black men specifically to talk about power than to talk about pleasure and touch. And so one thing I want to do for the rest of this year is talk about pleasure and touch with all of my friends who are cis and who are men and just be like, can we talk about like what the fuck makes us feel good around each other? Ain't no model for that shit but I think we have to create it. I have a, like a, a quick story. As a young kid, I had a sexual assault that happened to me as a young kid. I was 14 and I didn't tell anybody. I kept it to myself until I was 22 and I was facing a life sentence. And I told my father and I, when I told him, I didn't actually tell him. I wrote a note, uh, called home the night before I knew he was coming to visit me. And I said, I'm gonna write you a note. I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to ask me no question about it, but I just need to give you this note. And on a visit, you know, it was illegal to pass notes off, but I did it anyway, passed him a note. And, and the note was me speaking about the assault that happened to me eight years ago. And I, and I was like, please don't talk to me about it. I just needed to let it out. You know, my commitment to homophobia, my commitment to believing that a man or a boy has to be a certain way to what manhood and masculinity is, even as a 14-year-old kid, made me suffer. Like, I was more committed to these notions than to my own healing. And the reason why I want to bring that up because kind of going back to the Trump conversation, black men particularly, we all know that one of the connections that we believe that economically Trump is doing well for folks, right? 26% of black men says he's doing good for the economy and 6% of black women say he is. And there's a commitment to believe in that 
first of all, that, that's correct, that's accurate. And also the part of it is that you're actually not listening to that 6%, only 6% of black women saying that he's doing good. So you should just kind of like be listening, checking yourself. But aside from that, there's a commitment to like just walk, not even walk sense of masculinity, just the only condition of masculinity many of us has had. This commitment to that is more important than like our own safety. Like Trump is unsafe. He's unsafe. I mean, he's shown that. He's unsafe for black people. He's unsafe for all people. That's the first of all, the only thing is for black people. He's an unsafe person. He's a sick person, right? And he's unsafe. And I think that our commitment to these phobias or to these things are not real or to these conditions of what manhood or, or, or masculinity is or to what sexuality is. Our commitment to that misinformation is literally hurting us all. And that's the thing I just want to just like draw a real life example to it. Like that hurt me and led me in a whole different direction in life because I was so committed to what people thought a boy, man, heterosexual should be. I would rather hold that pain. Like how committed are you to these beliefs? Are you so committed that you're willing to sacrifice the entire community? Toxic masculinity kills. It's a public health crisis, right? And until we actually talk about it as what it is, it dehumanizes its victims and its perpetrators. For oppressed people, patriarchy really means a lot, right? Because it's a place where you can claim and walk in power, a false sense of power, I wanna say that. And the question becomes like, how do you give that shit up? What's the detox strategy for toxic masculinity in ways that allow people to heal and reimagine not only themselves, but the communities that they want to be in. And, and I wow. think that is such a brilliant project that oftentimes isn't spoken in public because it's private. Because, you know, I'm not even sure that all the Black men that I meet like the masculinity portrayal that they've been assigned to perform. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I see a lot of performance. They, they don't. They don't. <laughs> it's straight up performance. I'm just like, and, and it's exhausting. And it's it is exhausting. so, yeah. And, and once you sort of unclothe that nonsense, right, you have to really ask yourself, well, who am I? And that's some terrifying shit, right? It, it, is, a, it is an intimacy level, there is no public space for it. They don't talk about it at the barbershop, <laughs> right? So there is no place to kind of do this work. But I do think that's what the gift of feminism actually provides is a space to really expand your humanity, right? It doesn't, it doesn't take away. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we're talking about a politics and a politics of racial justice that really accounts for all the differences that matter. And, you know, finally, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from all of you here uh, uh, before we start to close up my barbershop, like what responsibility really do black men have to bring to other black men in their communities a feminist and intersectional consciousness, right? You know, what does it mean uh, to not only have dignity, but be a responsible African-American man uh, in the context of a community that you love, but you understand that just like there's white supremacy coming from the outside, there are isms and, 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 and patriarchy is one of those isms that are killing us on the inside. I don't know that what we need to do is different than other folks, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I know wholeheartedly that we need to personally and communally create more opportunities for us to reflect on suffering and to reflect on like our role in suffering. 
I think patriarchy is one way into that. I think white supremacy is another way. I think cis-heteropatriarchy is another way into it. I think empire is another way. But at the end of all of these words, there's like systems of suffering that we are victims of and that we are also perpetrators of. And so I think as a black boy from Mississippi, I need to talk about the ways that unchecked, I would create a world that was harder for black women that I don't know to live in, black boys that I don't know to live in, black genderqueer folks that I don't know to live in. And then I need to ask myself, what does black feminism have to do with that remedy? And I think that until you see yourself as part of not just the suffering, but that who is making someone suffer, it's just hard to change anything. But the flip is that you can't do this sort of like, I'm going to throw myself on the cross thing and just name every fucked up thing I've ever done to every person in the world. One, because I don't think that's fair to people who you've harmed who might not want their shit put out there. So it's really difficult, you know? And I think sometimes when I'm talking to groups of men, we go to that, we're like, okay, well, let me tell you every fucking thing that I think I've done wrong to a woman. And then it sort of becomes pornographic because everybody's like, wow, 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 wow. So I just think like with anything, there has to be a practice, but I don't think that practice can be complete if we don't see ourselves as both survivors and actual like very, very, very active participants in this culture that's killing the trans women around us, the trans men around us and us. Like we, we're kind of doing this shit to ourselves and the nation wants us to do it to ourselves. So how do we excavate that shit? How do we stop doing that work for them? Is a question I sort of ask myself every morning I wake up and I fail at answering it, but I ask it nonetheless. All right, I see you. You know, we've talked about, you know, so much that's wrong. I, I do want to ask one last question. In the context of the politics that we're talking about and fighting back against it, what inspires you? Could I start with you, Wade? Sure. What inspires me right now is I am developing a practice of self-love. I don't have it down, right? But I'm working on understanding, like, what are the things that I need to do every day that give me the ability to love myself more? So that would be it. You know, I've been blessed to like travel a lot, right? And I spent some time in a village in South Africa, a rural area called Marikana. All the men were literally killed by local forces there. And, but the women are the ones who, when we spend time with them, they cook for them. They did all sorts of things. They showed us around. They built, they built schools. Like the women built the entire community. Like there's a replenished community there that the women in this little rural area built up. And the reason I'm sort of bringing that story in, I mean, is that I think when we talk about feminism, we tend to think about it in the lens of some sort of weakness. We are connoted to weak. We just have, we believe in that, right? We're committed to that misbelief. But if we really look back in our communities, who has been, not only raising us, who's done, I come from an organizing background in the street, you know, from gun violence, stuff. like black women ran the meetings. They got us together. They prevented dudes from shooting each other. They fundraised, like they did all the things. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, that inspires me more so to not only to continue to like, be more uncomfortable about these conversations, but also kind of inspired to know that like what's possible. Like I really believe in our power and our abilities. And I think that the skewed belief that any sort of elevation of, of what we consider anything that is not common to what manhood is, you know, I believe that once we get past that, there's nothing that we can't build and create, man. There's really nothing we can't build and create. What's inspiring me at the moment are these beautiful parade of folks going to vote early. And it has a way of just taking your heart because I need to believe that underneath those lines, 
our desire for a different world order. And I don't think we know what it looks like, but seeing the line of folks signing up for that is moving, right? It's so important because in moments that feel so dark, those lines are full of celebration. We're seeing people dance. We're seeing people bring food, <laughs> right? It's like a community affair. And to Marlon's point, it, it almost reminds you a little bit of like at the international level, how people think about voting. It's not transactional. People really want a transformative relationship with the body politic. Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy to just be listening to y'all tonight. That makes me happy. And also, you know, my grandmama, she was born in, in Mississippi and she was one of these Mississippians in the 1930s who could have left. She decided not to leave. She could have left in the 50s. She decided not to leave. And she wasn't allowed to vote until she was deep in her 30s. She experienced poll taxes. She experienced, you know, having to go up there and talk to people and give the Mississippi history that they would create on the spur of the moment. But my grandmother took care of me when I was a little boy. And every time she could vote, she would vote. And that's not what makes me happy. What makes me happy is she would vote and then she would get her ass in the car and talk shit about the person she just voted for. So I think this idea that like these black old people are going to the polls and they're just all like in the ass of the Democratic Party. Okay, maybe. I ain't seen it, fam. I've seen old ass black women see this as one strategy toward our liberation, not the strategy. And I try to like not be mad much anymore because it's not good for my fucking like blood pressure. But when people talk this shit about these old ass black people and black women specifically as if they are not fucking like politically sophisticated and these motherfuckers made their way through Jim Crow, made their way through incarceration, made their way through all of this and still alive. I just got to say, it makes me more than fucking happy to see sophisticated rural black women understand that the vote is but one strategy toward our liberation and the garden is another. And working to get these books in the back door of these public schools is another. So quit fucking acting like these black women are dumb as fuck when they are the reason we standing here. That's it. Nothing else needed to be said. It's done. <laughs> All right. So we started in the barbershop and we ended up in church, y'all. Um, I just, okay, I'm taking it all in. I've got to do the thank yous. So man, very special thank you to Luke Charles Harris uh, for taking the mic tonight, cutting up, cutting some hair and cutting up some ideas. Thank you to our amazing panelists, Wade Davis, Marlon Peterson, Kiese Lehman, and Alvin Starks. I mean, what all can I thank you for? for? First of all, for being present, for being honest, brutally honest, for being thoughtful, and for loving us, loving Black people. Um, that just, we don't see this enough. Um, and now that people have seen it, I think we know what's possible. And this is what we can reproduce in the barbershops and in you know, our dining rooms and all the places that we're coming together right now to think about, to talk about what the heck is gonna happen um, 
Either way, next week, we got a bumpy journey ahead. It is like we are in 1876. And if y'all don't know what that's about, go read a book, find out. We have been here before. We had more people elected. We had more power um, in some ways than we do now. And it got wiped out as a consequence of an election. So, you know, when people say election has consequences, it's kind of like, you know, that old saying that, you know, when, when, uh, when, when white folks get a cold, you know, we get pneumonia. When people say election has consequences, it means we can be out for the count for generations if we don't step up in this moment. So anyway, my moment, y'all inspired me. Sorry, this has been a necessary conversation. Thank you all. Enjoy your evening. And hey, make a plan right now. If you haven't already voted, make a plan to do it today. November 3rd is five days away. Our future is forever. We have a chance to do something about it in five days. And once we do something about it, let's not do what we did the last time and think, oh, it's all taken care of. This is just to allow us to get to the next day to fight. But the fight is still on no matter what the fight is on and we need to be part of it. So encourage your friends, your family members, do the same, take 10 people with you, have a party, make it a picnic like Alvin said, but just do it. Thank you everybody and good night. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Sheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.